funny enough, we, a few months ago, changed around some of the lectionary texts because we're about to take these two weeks off, changed some things around and moved, um, moved one text to today that I think is actually a couple weeks. We would have missed it in the couple of weeks that we're off. And it just so happens to be about women. And I promise you, as like the lady pastor up here, I didn't make all of this happen at once. Um, the Lord, I think, helped, helped us. And the reason I think the Lord helped us is because... Um, Jesus gets to speak for women today, and I am really grateful for that. Um, so we are going to talk about we're going to talk about women. Anybody excited? We're going to talk about um, we're going to do some Bible study. We're going to do some theology. As you all know, when I talk theology, I talk fast. I will try to slow down. Um, so we're going to we're going to do a lot of work this morning, and I'm really excited to do it with you all. I think it's really important work. Um, so let's open up our Bibles to Luke chapter 10. starting in verse 38, probably a very familiar text to a lot of you. Now, as they went on their way, he entered a certain village where a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. He had a sister named Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to what he was saying. But Martha was distracted by her many tasks. So she came to him and asked, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the work by myself? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and distracted by many things. There is need of only one thing. Mary has chosen the better part, which will not be taken away from her. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So, like I said, we are going to talk about women today, theology of, of women's equality today, um, in, in the eyes of Jesus, in the eyes of what I think um, is true of the whole Bible. Um, but I think it's also really helpful to hear from someone who are, um, especially with a lot of new people today. So some of you who've been here for a while know, know a lot of my story. Um, but a, a brief introduction is that I grew up in a home that uh, wasn't really Christian. And I say wasn't really Christian because when you grow up in the South, we're all Christian, right? <laughs> it's like, it's just in the water. So if someone had asked me as a kid, are you a Christian? I'd have said, of course I am. And they would have said, what does that mean? I'd be like, I don't know. Um, and so we went to church a couple of times and things like that, but it wasn't really a part of my life. I've never had like a Jesus talk with either of my parents. Um, so that was kind of my religious upbringing for the most part. I am a millennial, grew up with the Spice Girls. Anybody? <laughs> I've always wanted to say Spice Girls in a sermon. Today was my day. Um, so as a kid, I had really great mentors and really great teachers. I had a lot of like women in my life who were doing the thing, you know, who were like really living into um, to who they were. And I also had things like Spice Girls, which was girl power, you know, and like I was really convinced as a kid that like girls run the world, like we can do anything. And, um, and that was kind of, you know, my posture growing up. Then I became a Christian when I was in middle school, thanks be to God, and I began to see that there might be limitations on me because I was a, a female. Um, I saw that there were really limited examples of women in the Bible who uh, were doing great things for God, at least compared to the amount of men, prominent men. And a lot of times when women did great things for God, it had to do with who they married or who they birthed. Um, and as a, you know, a young person, that meant not a lot to me at the time. It wasn't until I went to church that I saw the limitation of the roles of women in terms of leadership and jobs and calling. And it wasn't until getting into ministry <laughs> myself that I've ever been told more that I shouldn't have a job. Um, 
this is not a pity me thing. This is a just like, let me let you in a little bit. I've had no less than two Uber drivers tell me I should not be a pastor, <laughs> which is funny. You can laugh. Um, it's sad, but so both of those things are true that I grew up in that kind of like girl power world, but I also grew up in a world that kind of started to limit maybe those, some of those ways of thinking. And now I am ordained in the Anglican church and had to reckon with all of those things. Like how does, how can I stand here before you with full confidence? Um, as the person I think in is kind of like a little of, of, of how I think that, how I got there. And I with Jesus, um, as we'll see some of this thinking. And um, I'm doing it all, I think, with, this, with Jesus, um, as we'll see in a moment. So this story about Mary and Martha, for so many of us as women, we heard this story, and maybe even it felt liberating, that uh, even if you grew up in a complementarian worldview, that uh, women are typically responsible for what happens behind the scenes, but also we get to love the Lord. How great! You get to do both. <laughs> um, so we think about it that way. Or I've also heard it in very uh, gender-neutral sermons where it talks about the two postures a Christian can have, um, where you can have a more active spirituality like that of Martha, or you can have a more contemplative spirituality like that of Mary, which I think is very nice. Um, but really what's happening in this story is something that is incredibly radical and history-altering. Um, and I love the Gospel of Luke because Luke really cares about women and talks a lot about women in Jesus' ministry. Um, but one of the things that Luke does is he puts this story right after the story about the Good Samaritan, which if you remember is a radical story about how Jesus talks about what it looks like to be a good neighbor. It's like the least expected person to be a good neighbor ends up being the good neighbor. And that person crosses ethnic boundaries to help a person that is unclean. And they normally in, this, in Jewish culture would, have, would never have been, those lines would never have been crossed. So that was a radical moment of Jesus saying, like no longer does where you grow up or um, what you look like what your skin color is, no longer do those things determine who gets to enter into the kingdom of God, determine who gets to follow Jesus, who has worth. And Luke's like, if y'all thought that was radical, just wait till you hear what Jesus has to say about women. But because we don't know the cultural context, maybe those things don't stand out to us as much. So let me um, paint the picture for you. So what's happening here is that the real problem is not that Mary is not helping the problem is that Mary's behaving like a man. So when uh, Jesus or any rabbi would teach, there was only ever male disciples, people who would sit at the feet of Jesus and listen to Jesus and, and learn from him. And so when Mary takes this place, it's audacious, um, not just because she's sitting um, at the feet of Jesus and women. They just didn't mingle like we do. Um, so women were often, as you can imagine, put into more of the hidden spaces, especially within the home, places like the place where food is prepared. Men were given the public spaces so they could roam about throughout their house as they wanted to without going into these kind of more hidden spaces. Um, and women didn't venture out into the public ones. Obviously, when Jesus enters this home, he's sitting in the public space with the men. Mary comes out into that public space. So that's number one problem, right? And then number two is that she comes and sits at the feet of Jesus. So not, not only is this a big deal because she's sitting where a man would sit, but when you sit at the feet of a rabbi and you learn from them, it's not just for learning's sake. 
And it's not just for adoring Jesus. When you sit at the feet of a rabbi, it's because you are going to become a rabbi. You are a disciple of Jesus. You are going to follow in his footsteps and become a teacher. So what's happening here is what Jesus is saying is that the better part, the part that Mary has chosen, is the role as t- of teacher and preacher of the gospel of Jesus. That's the better part for women. Jesus affirms it. Can I get an amen? amen. That's good news. So, but some use that this, isn't an ar- this is not an argument for modern Western women's liberation, but something greater than that, actually. He says, Jesus' valuation of each human being is based not on abstract egalitarian ideals, but on the overflowing love of God, which, like a great river breaking its banks into a parched countryside, irrigates those parts of human society which until now had remained barren and unfruitful. Mary stands for all those women who, when they hear Jesus speaking about the kingdom, know that God is calling them to listen carefully so that they can speak of it too. So I reference this kind of thing a little bit on Easter, that the res- resurrection of Jesus and his first pronouncement of the re- resurrection story to women is possibly the greatest affirmation of women in the entire Bible. Um, that Jesus you know, was raised from the dead and reversed all things, a lot of things, um, specifically death, but also began to set other things in motion. And one of those things is is that he rose from the dead and found women waiting for him. And he hand-delivered the good gospel news to them to go be given to his disciples, his closest friends, his closest followers. He gives that message to women. And he says, you tell first. You do this first. You go take it to them. This story about Martha and Mary is about the boundary-breaking call of Jesus and how that is what the the resurrection life of Jesus does, not just then, but even today. (laughs) Amen. Paul continues in the egalitarian tradition of Jesus in his teaching. So when I normally talk about this and I say all these things about Jesus, people are like, yeah, that sounds really good. And then the question after that is, Paul? Um, Which is a good question, even though not a complete one. So I want to talk about Paul. I want to help, okay? So we're going to do some serious thinking in theology right now. Stay with me. Paul continues in this egalitarian tradition of Jesus in his teachings in the epistles in the New Testament, but also by continuing to appoint women as leaders in the church. Even when we get to some of Paul's problematic texts or seemingly contradictory texts to some of those egalitarian ways of thinking in the women that he appointed, um, we can use the messages, his messages, about the heart of what it means to be Christian, to measure those things against. So we're going to go back to the Old Testament now. You ready? We've gone gospels, then epistles, and we're going to come back, and now Old Testament. We're just running all over the place. So let's talk about laws. So from the beginning of God's people as like an organized unit, God gave them laws, and the people understood these laws as the greatest gift God has ever given humankind. They were a way so that God could make his people not like Lord the Flies, right? Say, like, step into a greater way of being. So there were these three different kinds of laws um, that we can see in the Old Testament that we see Paul kind of alluding to in the New Testament as well. The first is moral laws. These are things like the Ten Commandments. These are things that, as Jeremiah puts it, are written on the human heart, These are the things about what it means to be human, what it means to know and follow Jesus that have never changed. 
Um, for example, when Paul talks about them, he, he talks about things, uh, talking about the Ten Commandments and loving your neighbor and those kinds of things that are the moral law. Another way that Paul talks about moral law is kind of the antithesis of the laws. I always hope I'm never the person who has to stand up here and read those texts. But they're the texts, and you know what I'm talking about, where he lists, it's like a full paragraph of sins. I've had to do it before. It's not fun. But do you know what I'm talking about? Those lists of sins Paul, Paul will write about in the New Testament. In those things, he talks about things like sexual boundaries, uh, greed, lying, uh, not, not loving. Um, those things for Paul are, are, he's explaining the antithesis of the moral law and saying that, that these are, are sinful things because of the, they're, they're different from the way that God has created us to be. So that's moral law. With me? It's most essentially what it means to love and follow God. Then we have things like ceremonial laws. And these are the laws for a lot of us when we get to books like Leviticus, we're like, I don't know. Uh, these are laws that guide the way we interacted with God in the temple. They're hard for us to understand because they have been fulfilled and transformed in Jesus. We no longer practice any of them, and so we no longer kind of understand their cultural context, and that's why it's difficult for us when we get to some of these texts in the Old Testament. It's why we don't sacrifice animals anymore, because these things have been fulfilled and transformed in Jesus. We do, however, when we talk about things being transformed, we come to the table, right, where Jesus has been sacrificed for us. In the temple, when you sacrifice animals, you also eat some of those animals. That's part of what the thing is. And what do we do when we come to the Lord's table? We take part by eating in the sacrifice as well. So those are the ceremonial laws. And lastly, we have civil laws. This is the one that this, this and moral laws are the most important. And these are laws that guided societies in how to function within their specific cultural context. When you see things change throughout the Bible, some of the ways that people work and some of the ways that society works and functions together, and that can feel confusing, that's because these are civil laws. Things like um, not eating uh, uh, pork in certain ways um, is for the health of the community. It wasn't, it wasn't a um, ceremonial law or a moral law. So an example I love to give of this is there was this man named Zelophehad. Anybody know this story? Is this obscure? Uh, there was this guy named Zelophehad. Put it on your baby name list. And he had many, many daughters, but no sons. And these daughters were not very happy with this rule that they couldn't inherit anything. And yet it was the rule. So one of the daughters went to Moses and he said, she said, Moses, this is unfair. Um, we will not survive if we don't inherit uh, my father's inheritance now that he has died. Moses takes this to God. And God says, let's change it. And they do. And these girls inherit all the inheritance from their parents. This is a great example of a civil law. This existed during a certain time in a certain space uh, to, to uh, guard and guide things within a specific moment in history. This is why we see some things change over time in the Bible. And we, we don't have to ask questions why. Because the most important things stay the same. Our history changes many, many things. So... Let's go back to Paul. Ready? With me? Paul is very clear in his text that the moral laws have not changed, nor are they irrelevant to being a Christian. They are essential about what it means to follow Jesus, the things that we all agree upon. Those things are the moral laws. And he makes civil ordinances and rules for certain churches in certain places and in certain times. 
I would argue, and many have argued before me, not just modern times, but um, throughout history, that most of his declarations about things like wearing head coverings, not speaking in church, deferring to husbands, were civil laws, things that were specific for a specific place and time. It's why a lot of us, I'd say like 99 to 100% of us didn't walk in here today wearing head coverings, right? We all agree on some level that that was a momentary law. There was a momentary guidance. So that's like the civil law thing. So Paul, I want to let him speak for himself here. Paul's argument in Galatians that before faith came, we were imprisoned and guarded under the law until faith would be revealed, leads then into one of his most famous and most enduring moments in all of scripture. He says, as many of you as were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. He says, there is no longer Jew or Greek. There is no longer slave or free. There is no longer male or female. For all of you are one in Christ Jesus. He is not erasing ethnicity or erasing gender. He is saying that the unequal structures that we live in, that we exist in based on our skin color or where we grew up or who our parents are or what our chromosomes are, those things, those unequal structures do not exist in the kingdom of God because those who have been baptized in him are clothed with Christ and he is now the measure of our worth. Not us. Not anything that you, it defines you or says who you are, not what you look like, nothing. Nothing can define who you are other than what Jesus Christ has done for you. This story about Martha and Mary is one of the first stories of how Jesus came to call, equip, and liberate women to be teachers and preachers and leaders and bringers of the kingdom of God into this world. So let's talk about equity very quickly. This is a whole class. Um, but we got to go through things quickly. Equity sometimes means, or means, really, that there are only a certain amount of seats at the table. And someone is going to have to give theirs up in order for the diversity to happen. We talk about equity. This is not just for women. This is a diversity across the board. So what I've been imagining this week is what if the church was the place this really began to happen? Who are we but people who give up our seats for other people? Amen. Did Jesus not teach us that? That's our calling in life. So what if the church, what if there's a revolution of wealthy and privileged churchgoers that downsized their power and gave up their seats who norm, for people who normally would either never get them or work their whole life to earn them? To the men in particular in this room, if you begin to do things like this, you will be called a fool. You will be called emasculine. Um, you will be called irresponsible, and you're, you may even feel like it's a waste. But we all need to be asking ourselves, would the kingdom of God come through those things? Does the kingdom of God through, come through those who share their power, who lay themselves down for the sake of others? Sound familiar? It's what Jesus taught us to do. We all, every single one of us in this room, need to be asking ourselves, how much space do I take up? How many resources do I take up? What is my platform, and how big is it? And then, once we answer those questions for ourselves as best we can, we need to ask ourselves, as John Wimber, the leader of the Vineyard Movement, says, how do I then begin to spend my power, my privilege, my resources like change in God's pockets? How do I begin to look at the people around me who need that spare change and just throw it at them, just give it to them generously, begin to spend those things in the world? Here are my three suggestions in terms of equity, and they're incredibly 
it's short. These are across the board for all diversity. Number one is financial equity. According to Pew Research study, the women's pay gap holds steady. Rude. Um, Women continue to earn 84% of what men earn. If you have the power to make financial choices for women at your place of work, make them. Make those choices for people around you. You may have to sacrifice your own salary for it. Ask yourself if it's worth it. Ask yourself if Jesus would do it, if you can be okay without it. The second is giving away power. The level of power and privilege you have should dictate the amount of power and privilege you are giving away. If you have power in your workplace, in your family, in your organization, wherever it is, find ways to give that power away, to give the space for speaking away, to give opportunities away. It's our job. And lastly, is giving the benefit of the doubt, which I hate even putting it that way, because that in, in says basically that we doubt women. But isn't that true? Um, we don't take women as seriously as men do a lot of times. And even when we think we do, um, there are implicit things within us where we do not. I wish I could tell you how many times I have heard people say, I'm egalitarian, I just prefer male preachers. I've heard it a lot. And here's the truth. I'm not sad for me. I'm happy to be here. I'm happy to do the work I'm doing. I believe Jesus has called me. If all we ever hear are men in one or two or maybe three women, we are going to believe that the gospel sounds better through a male voice. We're going to believe that male voice makes things sound more true. So of course we're going to like them better. Of course we will be uh, predisposed to thinking that 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 is the voice through which Jesus wants to speak and says the most true things. I'm not saying you have to prefer women speakers. I'm not saying you should come up to me after this and say, but you did a good job. Please don't. (laughs) Um, We have to give people the benefit of the doubt, particularly people who have been existing on the margins, particularly women who are venturing out in male-dominated spaces. I think you deserve to be here. I think you're doing a good job. I'm going to give you even more space. We have to come to a place where we're no longer doubting women so that we no longer have to give them the benefit of the doubt. Amen? I'll close with this before we baptize some babies. To all the women here, a warning to us in this text is that generations of being subjected to the unseen spaces, literally and metaphorically, has made us tend towards, a lot of times, jealousy and scarcity when it comes to other women gaining power and influence. I'm a woman in a male-dominated field. I understand this more than most people do. There isn't a lot of space for us, and so these feelings are really natural and normal. But if we are God's children then we should understand that there is no shortage of resources in God's kingdom. Yes, there are limited seats at the table, but we have to imagine if we don't have a seat there yet that God can do anything with that table. He can rearrange those seats any way he wants, and all I have to do is believe until those things happen. All I have to do is fight until those things change. Believe that God will work. And if you question, you fight with all the power that is within you to get more women at that table. You use all the power and privilege that you have to make space for other women. Don't hoard it. Give it away. Continue to give it away. Lastly, 
an encouragement to us in this text in general is that God has no shortage of gifts he's given you, that he wants to give you. No shortage of words that he's spoken to you and over you and will speak to you. No limit on the leadership in your life and no small dreams for you. It doesn't mean you need a job to do these things. I want you to hear me say that. That's, I'm not saying that like your job will be the full fulfillment of your womanhood as a, as a, as a, as a person. It's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is that God has, is, is not limited by your gender. To imagine that God would create us, male and female, and say, one can't do as much as the other, is an insult, I believe, to the power of God and what God has to do in this world and the work God has for us in this world. God to what God might do in you and through you and for this world. There just isn't. And to say that there might be is sinful, frankly. To say to someone that there might be something less that God can do in their life is just untrue. It's an insult to who God is and to what God is doing in the world. The world needs the gifts of women in the church and elsewhere. Our gifts have been in hidden spaces for far too long. And Jesus is saying to you, all you women out there, come receive the better part. Come learn from him at his feet, not just to adore him, but to go be preachers of the gospel in the world, to go and share the kingdom with all of God's people. Amen. Amen. Hello, friends. This is Matthew, the lead pastor at Emmanuel Anglican Church in East Atlanta. Thank you so much for listening to our podcast. We are disciples of Jesus who are seeking his kingdom and the flourishing of our neighbors. And if you want to find out more about Emmanuel and what's going on, just hop over to our website. The address is Emmanuel, that's with an I, EmmanuelATL.org. Thanks so much. God bless you. Grace and peace.